Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Michael Brooks, who is the CEO of RealPack. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks very much. This will be an interesting episode. It's veering off some of the typical topics that we cover on the podcast. There's a Michael's background, and, and we'll, we'll, you'll hear of the different things he's talking about. But this is one of those episodes where I have no idea where we're going to end up, what the conversation is going to be because of the diversity of the things that you cover. So there's the hook. Just to stay tuned, I guess. Is ignorance the hook? Is yeah, this, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you, I have no idea what we're going to talk about, so it'll be interesting. Thousand um, people just clicked off the podcast. <laughs> as long as yeah, we got the download, so who cares? I'm teasing. So, I mean, of course, as always, before we do that, Michael, let's just start with your career and how you ended up today at RealPack. Uh, story of serendipity, I think, is the way it goes. I'm a undergrad urban planner from the University of Waterloo, and I thought that gee, that sounds like a fun thing to do: draw colors on maps and move land uses around. But as I got late into my course at Waterloo, wasn't ready to graduate and there were, no one was hiring at the time. So I thought I should write the LSATs for fun one weekend and managed to get into law school. He's, to, he's not lying either. I know this story. You literally just decided, hey, I'm just going to write the LSATs. I write the LSATs, and yeah, no, no Saturday, prep, no studying. Nothing. Squeaked through and uh, managed to get, get into Western for law school. By the way, I had a lot of fun in university. Those are two really good schools. And when I graduated from Western, I thought I'd be the only guy on the planet with a mix of planning and law. I figured out, oh, I can write my own ticket. Clearly, that should happen. One of my interviews was with Jane Pepino, then with a small boutique firm. Jane is famous for being one of the best municipal lawyers in the country. She's also famous for being on this podcast on okay. a previous episode. <laughs> She's yeah. a fantastic lady. So, you know, I walk into my interview with Jane and I wasn't quite sure what she did. And I, I, Jane, you know, what exactly is your practice like? And she held up two of those little blue booklets, which is how they used to publish law in those days. One was the Municipal Act, one was the Planning Act. And she says, this is all I do. And I thought to myself... I'm home. So articled for Jane and the small boutique firm at the time did planning law, municipal law, OMB, rezonings, official plan amendments, minor variances, you name it at that time. But I kind of got lured away to the money side of the business. There was a partner of Jane's who did development work. And I was always interested is how do the developers make so much money? what's What's this real estate stuff all about? So I ended up sliding over and doing more transactional real estate. So everything, financing, leasing, buying, selling, developing with that gentleman and had a a great run with him. And changed firms to bigger firms a couple of times, ended up back with Jane at Airden Burles in 1990 and have practiced commercial real estate ever since. There are some side stories, of course, along the way. Got bored with law, if you can believe it, after about three years, and so decided I'd do my master's of laws part-time. Got interested in business law and business generally. It was an LLM in business law. And then I decided maybe I'll do my MBA as well. Did my MBA during the recession of 1990 to 1995. I was kind of underemployed, not really too busy at the office. Did it part-time up at Schulich at York University. Really enjoyed the learning part of it. I realized that I'm a lifelong learner. Really like the stimulation of other people's perspective and other topics and other subject matters. Finished the MBA in 1995 while practicing law. 
restless again and rolled right into the MBA, from the MBA into uh, doing a PhD program back at University of Waterloo, again in urban planning. That was a time when there was a lot of global discussion around infrastructure privatization. You know, Ronald Reagan, Maggie Thatcher was privatizing much of the UK. Brian Mulroney was engaged in some privatizations, but there wasn't as much to privatize in Canada as there was in the UK at the time. But there was this move in the US to move everything to an authority, kind of an independent entity. So I did my PhD on infrastructure privatization. I really enjoyed that. This is all part-time while I'm practicing. The real pack story starts in the middle of that in 1996 when uh, my friend David Arthur, then at Costaine, which came cost can, which then became Brookfield, hmm. and he was a planning school classmate of mine, said, hey, we're looking for a guy to take over this organization. It's one person with an assistant, you know, do you know anybody? And so I referred him to somebody, and he came back a month and a half later, no, no, we don't like that person. You got anybody else in mind? So, okay, here's another name, try this person. So finally, he came back to me, and he said, no, no, Mike, you still don't like that guy. Is there anybody else? And I said, well, I got the perfect guy, but you can't afford him. Hmm. That was me. <laughs> so uh, I kind of joked about it, and we thought, well, maybe we'll do something part-time. You know, why don't you, you know, could you swing something you know, three days a week, and you keep your practice going, and you kind of run us three days a week. And at that time, we had a tiny little office, I don't know, 500, 400 square feet, like half a condo, shag rug, Oak double pedestal desk, correcting selectric typewriter, couch. It was a time capsule of old office. Um, and you loved it. Well, I loved it because I could do so much. It was a platform to do something with. And when I looked at the time at the big U.S. organizations, NAOP particularly, big platform, big staffs, everything in-house. So lobbying's done in-house, standard setting, report writing, as opposed to just writing the odd letter to government and forming a committee and relying on lawyers and lobbyists outside. So I thought I had a good model to work from going forward. So that was 1997 when I started at RealPAC and mm. been a, a fun run ever since. You're not in the same office anymore. No, I got we have number of four or five now. So we are up to 12 people. We're at 5,000 square feet. We've quadrupled our membership. I think we're around 25. Uh, now we're 100. Uh, yeah. So pretty much have every big commercial institutional real estate company in Canada now. So members. that's probably a good segue into like, what is real pack? You know, if someone's never heard of it, maybe what, what yeah. would be the, what would be the, here's what it is. I think it, I'd say it's a typical trade association, but you could boil it down into four pillars. The connect thing obviously is connecting the C-suite with each other. Unlike other organizations, we're a, a C-suite representative organization, so CEO, CFO, senior VPs through our various committees. So connecting those people to each other and just those people, I think, would be a primary focus for us. The advocacy for many of our members is the number one driver of membership. We're the only organization outside of maybe BUILD in the GTA with three full-time equivalents lobbying all the time for our industry. So uh, international work around accounting standards, around tax, around ESG, national work around REIT legislation, maintaining that, Securities Commission, OSFI, regulatory bodies, and then land use issues across the country. So that's OMB, that's Bill 108 in Ontario, that's rent control in Quebec and 
BC, it's property tax shifts in Calgary, it's everything. So that's the advocacy part. And then the support and educate parts of it really are doing research for the industry, cost sharing, whatever the industry needs, whether it's benchmarking or best practices, global research on certain issues. So um, I've mentioned that, that some of our top current projects include PropTech, what's happening around the world on that, ESG, environment, social, and governance. Boy, there's a huge tailwind in that sector affecting all of our members. Diversity and inclusion is a big issue that's catching on globally as well with my peer trade associations. So that's relevant. And then the smart cities piece, which I think Sidewalk Labs has put on the table for all of us to think more deeply about. Those are four big projects for so us right now. On the, let's grab one. On the smart cities concept, maybe just define what you interpret that to mean. And I don't know if you want to talk about sidewalks in particular or if you want to just maybe in general discuss where smart cities come into play with real estate and how that's going to change the way our, our industry kind of operates today. And what you're advocating for specifically. Yeah, maybe yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe do to, maybe do real PAC's perspective, but then your own personal perspective on it. Well, I think real PAC educates me. And as we do research in our office, again, I've always been a lifelong learner. I think it's my job to learn and change and adapt and be adaptable. So the sidewalk piece, and there'll be varying views out there about Sidewalk Labs. And just, um, just in, for clarity in the event that you're not familiar, Sidewalk Labs is a Google initiative in the, sort of the southeast side of downtown Toronto where they've kind of got a big chunk of land and they're proposing to build, I don't know, millions and millions and, and half millions million. of square feet of mixed use and they're calling it a smart city. Let's def- can we define what's a smart? What is a smart city? It sounds like a sounds like a buzzword. Like yeah, the yeah. city's smart. Like I don't understand. Does this mean like moving sidewalks and they're reading my mind? Like what does it what does it mean? I think, but that's exactly the issue. The smart city in Google's mind is very tech enabled. It's not everybody's vision of a smart city. So take the example of automobiles. Is a smart city one where there everything's autonomous, or is a smart city one where everybody's riding bicycles? There's a high-tech vision and there's a low-tech vision. It's one of those. There's a strong government intervention vision and then there's a private market vision. Which is it and where is it on that spectrum? So I think really part of the exercise we're doing now is to try to define a smart city. And what I think you do is you start with goals. What is the goals of a city? Smart or whatever you want to call it, innovative. One is health of its citizens. So that's air quality, that's the sustainability piece. Efficiency, don't spend money duplicating services. Part of that is the anti-sprawl piece, but also part of it is maybe getting people out of cars and into transit, uh, better use of, and, and moving goods and enabling goods to move around the city. I think part of it is also success and efficiency of the people who are living there. Are they successful? Is there GDP growth? Is it attractive to immigrants? So I think you start with... Is there a, the and there must be an affordability component too? This, I think making it smart, all these things sound great, but they would be expensive, wouldn't it? It's funny, I had this debate this morning with somebody. I think the affordability is a consequence of the policies that you enact along the way. We know that Toronto is getting very expensive. I've been critical of some policymakers of getting on the supply bandwagon too late. This should have happened during the Liberal government. This should not, or before... They should not have waited for a conservative government to get going on this. If you look at some other cities around the world, which ones are huge cities that don't have affordability problems? Tokyo is kind of my poster child right now. And what differentiates Tokyo from Toronto is that their affordability index is way below all other major cities. 
They've done a very good job at maintaining affordability in their city. Part of that reason is because they have high-speed rail access from outlying centers. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Let's say, Aaron, you wanted to live in London, Ontario, or Guelph. You can afford a house there. It's a nice lifestyle for a family. You can get your kids into soccer and hockey and whatever. If you could get to Toronto in 30 minutes on a train or 20 minutes, that would be a viable alternative. That's Aaron's current commute, I think, from uh, Etobicoke. And for anybody not from the (laughs) geography, (laughs) London's two-hour drive. Guelph's probably an hour and a half. And Etobicoke, where Aaron is now, is probably 20, 30 minutes. Well, or an hour and a half, depending on the day. (laughs) I mean, I'm jealous of Japan because they have that Shinkansen train which has a top speed of 320 kilometers an hour. So would you call Tokyo a smart city? Like I, I, yes, I would that, call Tokyo a smart city. There were some photos I took of Tokyo. I mean, crime. Do you want to have low crime as one of the goals of a smart city? I would think so. I took a photo of a bicycle on the sidewalk of the Ginza district in Tokyo. It had no lock on it. When was the last time you saw a bike without a lock on it, and you'd say right away, if it, you know, that's going to get stolen yeah, in about 20 I, I minutes. Have two, I have two employees that, that work here who have had their bike stolen in the last two weeks, both of them with locks on it, and the locks oh, were, were taken yeah. off. So, yeah, fair enough, good point. Yeah, and I didn't see any homeless people in Tokyo, and I was there for four and a half days. So I think you start with what are your goals of the city? Forget the smart part of it. What are your goals of a successful city? And I think you work forward from that. The tech part of it, maybe it's useful in achieving one or more of those goals. Maybe it isn't. I think you have to have that so, debate. So, I mean, maybe you can't answer this question, but have you, and maybe you haven't even looked at it, I assume you have kind of reviewed Sidewalk's proposal. Are they getting it right? Like, are they, do you think that they're on the right track or is, are they kind of misleading this concept of a smart city? So we have the full booklet, or 15,000 pages or something, in our office, and one of our staff has read it. I have not read it. I've just had the tour, and understand. I understand most of the elements. I like a lot of what they're doing. I like the cross-laminated timber, although they will build the tallest CLT buildings yet in the world. I have toured 33-story Ho-Ho Tower in Vienna, which is currently, I believe, the tallest cross-laminated timber building, and it's actually a hybrid. It's got concrete in there. As well, as well, for the elevators, right? For the elevator core and for just for some stability as well. So, I mean, that's a really interesting innovation. The, the movable sidewalks that allow drainage, I think, is really interesting. The fact that they have power over Ethernet cables, mm, that's not new tech. That's Cisco's tech. That's been around for a little while. As to what it's like running a whole building over Ethernet, not sure. I think what's daunting about Sidewalk Lab's proposal is that it's everything new all at once. And would it make sense to maybe pilot some of that stuff on a smaller basis? The concept first? is to take a leap forward it's rather a than big iterative leap steps. with yeah. a group that are not developers. Now they're smart people for sure. I don't know, my, my experience, my gut on this is that, gee, you know, could we just start a few of these things slowly and assimilate it and try to understand what the unintended consequences might be of this or that? But for sure, it's a really thoughtful, it's like, in many ways, it's like a concept car. This is a concept car that's kind of out there. Do we really want to make it mass production or do we want to kind of test out the concept car for a little while? Well, out of their longer term plan, I believe that the 12 acre site they have now is the concept car to then develop it into a much larger area, which I think has caused a little contention in the city. But I do know that if we are using Sidewalk Labs as the 
you know, the, the poster child for smart cities, affordability is at the forefront of their considerations for how they're going to put this yeah. together, which is, is nice to see. Yeah. As to whether it enough is enough to move the needle will remain to be seen. I mean, it's market housing for the most part. Yet we'll have an affordability component, but yeah, the supply issue is another issue that we need a lot more supply to stop the upward pressure on pricing and try to hold yeah, it for we, a while. We recently had an episode with Wendy Waters from Great West Life Realty Advisors. She's part of their research group and her statistics were saying, what was it, 230,000 new migrants to Toronto every year. So just based on that, you need to build 230,000 new housing units just to satisfy the demand that's coming in, not, not let alone yeah. the demand that exists already. I mean, it's, it's daunting, quite frankly. And we don't have the labor to build No, that. it's not. No. No, it or is, the it's, land. It's just going to get worse and worse. So, you know, yeah. buy apartment buildings. So in, we've kind of weaved through this. As part of the smart cities, I guess you mentioned ESG. Maybe describe what that means to you and what RealPAC, how RealPAC yeah. is, kind of, is promoting it. So ESG is short for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It's the current acronym for Socially Responsible Business. And I can say that it's really been around since, well, it's been around for a long time, but more formally, it was called Corporate Social Responsibility. We first got involved in 2007 when we started to notice some global awards for the best and most responsible corporations in real estate. So if you looked at the Dow Jones World Sustainability Index or FTSE for good, as I did back in 2007, all the winners were Australian companies. I went to Australia to try to figure out what is it about, what's in the water in Australia mm-hmm. that makes them so conscientious. And I met with a number of the CEOs and sustainability managers. And what I found out was that there's a couple of things about Australia that got them going early. One was that they have successive droughts. Water is really highly prized in, in Sydney and Melbourne because the interior of Australia is kind of barren, unlike Canada where it's just forests, right? And the second thing is that the whole in the ozone layer is very close to the southern part of Australia. So skin cancer rates are really high in Australia. So as a people, they really got climate change. Man can change the climate of the planet. And they were uh, quite concerned about it. And uh, I think that's rubbed off on the senior executives back then. I actually brought the first draft of the Corporate Social Responsibility Guidelines that Australia's developers had produced back to Canada, Canadianized it. We published it in 2008, I believe, as a guideline for our Canadian companies. And uh, there's been a number of organizations dedicated to facilitating disclosure by companies of their sustainability initiatives over the years, including, you know, Carbon Disclosure Project, Global uh, GRI, GRESB more recently. Uh, which is, is GRESB that? is short for Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. I think it's the de facto... ESG standard for real estate around the world now because it ranks you relative to your peers. Internationally. Internationally. You know whether you're better, whether you're worse. Um, Are some of these qualitative rather than quantitative? Absolutely. And does it convert into numerical rankings? Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, do you have a policy for this? Do you have a policy for that? The new resilience module, for example, would ask you, you know, have you analyzed your buildings for risk of flooding, for risk of heat or extreme cold if the power goes out, that kind of thing. So it's, and it was based loosely off of GRI. And so uh, it's a very good standard. Real PAC is the Canadian country partner for GRESP, so tooting their horn a little bit, but there's still nothing else that's like that. Are you finding that developers are taking it seriously, the real estate 
companies are taking it seriously. It's still, I feel like it's one of those things people feign at just so that they can say they've got it. Yeah. But it, at the end of the day, if it impacts the bottom line, it's the first thing that gets kind of okay. Yeah. Let's just not do that. Like, how do, how do you are you feeling that people are actually taking it more seriously? Is that First National's position, Aaron? No, or is no, it your no, no. I, I mean, we've, selling mortgages is hard to have a real big impact on sustainability. We, of course, we push affordability, but you know, yeah. are you seeing developers really take this seriously? I would say that it's it's a bell curve. The front end of the bell curve are the the big pension funds, the larger institutions whose shareholders might want their pension fund to act sustainability sustainably. But more recently, it's the big global investors who are requiring investee companies to have good ASG policies in place. So if you're Bentall Green Oak and you're looking for money in Europe to, to feed your next fund, they will, everyone will ask you, what's your GRESP score? What are you doing in sustainability? What are you doing under the S, which is the social or G governance part of the ESG metric? So big money around the world, absolutely on board with ESG. I think increasingly tenants, large bank tenants, for example, might ask Cadillac Fairview or Oxford, by the way, tell me your sustainability initiatives for this building. Because before I decide to become a tenant, I want to know that you're a good landlord and you're conserving water. So it's above and beyond just being LEED certified. Yeah, I mean, LEED is a proxy for that. But part of the key metric that I look for is authenticity. Do you really believe this, or are you just doing this because someone's well, asking yeah, asking that's, you that's to? That's where I was going. And I think you can I think you can sense that if this is something given to the marketing department, or it's something you're doing just because you think you can make a nickel more. I can sense that if this is something that you believe in, your employees believe in, your employees want you to be doing. Then I think that comes through. We had a gentleman named Jonathan Westein on windmill yeah. developments, and I mean that's talk about someone who truly believes it. I mean I think he was involved in the development of the lead certifications, and you know he was he's a condo developer, but he was talking about trying to you know attract better tenants or attract higher yields off of his purchasers because of the fact that his building is so sustainable. We'd have, probably have to have him back on. He was still in the planning stages. I'd like to see how it's now going with that, with a couple of his developments. If he truly is realizing a better return just because the quality of his building is so much more environmentally friendly and sustainable. And that was the end of that episode, I believe, was discussing what's the is economic act, return, is, what's yeah. the economic argument here beyond the social argument. And he had a compelling case at the time, but uh, we'll have him back on. And, and he's a good example of that because his first project that he did, he was explaining to me the municipal tailwind he got on approvals, fast track approvals, you know, a council that's all behind your project, staff that's all behind your... Some of these soft issues are really critical as opposed to fighting with planning staff because you've got... Zero green elements of your building. That's a great angle. If you, if you can save 18 months in the city, how much more focus would you yes. be on ESG? That's right? a hard economic case for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely, and, and it is. Or if you can get people lining up to join your fund because you are one of the best scoring fund managers on Grez, that's serious. We talked to Paul Zemla at Bental Green Oak, and Paul will tell you it's important for their fundraising initiatives. Neat, neat. Well, that's it. That's very interesting. We'll put some links in the show notes about Gresb and how you can kind of learn more about it. The other one that was prop tech. You yeah. talked about prop tech and what's what's Real Pack's approach and what kind of things are you seeing that's kind of coming down the pipeline. So this has been, I'm going to say, a two and a half years. Last two years, it started to show up at most conferences that I've gone to. There's a prop tech panel. Mm-hmm. There's three young engineers who've developed something that's cool and nifty, and people are checking it out. 
And so I think amongst the Real Pack membership, there is some confusion. I joke that this is like high school sex. Everybody's talking about it, but you're not sure if anything's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you talk to some of the senior people, they'll say, yeah, we're really interested in this and we're piloting this lease approval module and maybe we'll pilot this construction leasehold improvement module as well. But then their back office is legacy systems that's DOS-based, not mobile, not cloud, not user-friendly interface. So we're in this mixed world. And for the owners, they have a triage problem. What do I do first? What do I do second? Which system do you upgrade to be compatible with a, a trying to interact with a legacy system plus a new system? It's, There's another yeah. project you've got. You've got to yeah. build a bridge between the new system and the old system. And the brand new buildings wouldn't have the issue, but the bulk of the stock is not brand new buildings. It's exactly. And okay, if you've got scarce capex dollars, what do you spend it on first? Is it you got a building? Is it a new HVAC unit for the roof, or you do a software upgrade? which means training your people, which means a year and a half of you know, transition. So building owners and managers have to make decisions and allocate scarce resources, and that's part of the prop tech issue as well, the people side of it. I go to the same panels probably you do at these conferences, and I keep waiting for that just mind-blowing, wow, like that intense prop tech that's going to change everything, you know, robot butlers in the office or you know, Jetsons kind of you know, life. But a lot of it seems like it just is very small steps forward, small reductions and small efficiencies. Uh, is there anything that you can see in the radar, maybe not in practice today, that has a real, a real wow factor to it? Well, this may be a couple. The um, Leverton was an interesting software application that was, they call it AI, but I would call it natural language processing. And I used to do a lot of leasing work, leasing lawyer, transaction lawyer. And yeah, there are a bunch of software programs that can scan a lease and maybe pick out the rent numbers. This AI program developed in Germany could scan a lease and could read words and understand what the words meant and be able to give you a full qualitative analysis. I mean, literally putting some lawyers out of work. It got recently bought out, but I was very impressed with that technology because it's the first time I'd seen that. So I would say that is positive. The smart build, a lot of the smart building and the sensor technology, I think, is perhaps the most useful. Deloitte is a good example. Deloitte's office, where they have little sensors underneath the desks, so they can tell whether someone's knees are there or not. So they have a real-time occupancy screen in their lobby of their building, Bay Adelaide Center East. Which I thought, well, that's I haven't seen that before, and that's pretty cool. Okay, that's cool. That's a little bit of wow factor. Like yeah, that. that's yeah. that's wow factor. I just like that they've got the statistics live in their lobby. You can yeah. see who's at your desk at any time. It's a little bit of Big Brother, though. Well, isn't it, it? the thing is that it, it is Big Brother, but it's not who's at your desk because you don't own a desk. Right. It's hot desk, right? So it's you find a desk that's available, but it'll tell you where the desk that is available is, sure. and you plunk your laptop down, and away you go. I wonder if you could reserve it with a bag of potatoes. You know, there's workarounds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's so that's interesting. Um, I'm duly impressed. I like these answers. Yeah, this is. <laughs> we had I can't remember now who who said it. We've talked about it so often, but we've had blockchain specialists on a number of times, and they've been talking about smart contracts and how I think it was Dream in Europe using smart contracts and using blockchain technology for lease transactions and things. Which I don't know. And then that stuff, the same kind of thing. It seems like it's just taking forever. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody says it's interesting, and they yeah. they see the benefits, but no one's actually doing anything about it or I think it's really early, taking I think it's early forward. days. And the more you get into the black box, the more you start to question what's in the black box and what decision is it making for me that I don't know about. 
And what assumptions is it making? And would I really agree with all of those assumptions? This is almost uh, back to our discussion around a smart city. Let's start with what are your objectives as an owner? What's your brand as an owner? What's your objectives as an owner? What do you want to achieve? And then how does the technology help you achieve that? And right now we've almost got it spun around. So we're focused on the toys and not the objective. So I think it should be the other way around if you're an owner. Start with what do you want to accomplish? What do you want to be known at? What can you achieve with your scarce CapEx dollars? And then triage based on what's the biggest need I have today. I don't know if you looked into this aspect too in depth, but if you were looking, if you were a building owner and you had you know, a 1970s build office tower and nothing significant had been done to it, what would you do for the most immediate you know, return or improvement on your building? What would you put your, your scarce CapEx dollars into? First thing I would do is hire a consultant to do a competitive scan. What's my position in the marketplace? Everybody can't be a class A building. You know, is there, is there a deeper market at the class C level, for example, at a much lower rent? If you're trying to lease in a competitive market, but you have the lowest rent, I think you'll get some, you'll get some customers. But that'll affect your entire brand for that building. Maybe you won't make it the latest and greatest in terms of technology, or you'll focus the technology you are getting on cost reduction. So that's what I would start with is the competitive scan. I think that's the nature of business. And then uh, your fourth initiative with RealPAC is diversity and inclusion. You know, how recent is that and, and what actions are you taking there? Yeah, so like sustainability in 2006, kind of my own yikes moment, the significance of 2006 was then was when An Inconvenient Truth was released, hmm. which got me thinking about how important it was to help the industry get through that. The diversity and inclusion piece had been in the back of my mind for some time, but it wasn't until Sheila Botting and Tony Rossi pulled me aside at the uh, 2017 Real Estate Forum and said, Mike, you know, we really need an, an industry-level initiative around diversity and inclusion. And as you know, if you look around most of the major conferences, it's a lot of old white men like me, and it's white men generally. I think it's getting a little better in terms of gender representation, but there's a long way to go. I contrast that with the people who are coming into the industry. So I taught at Ryerson in their BCom program up until uh, last year. I had 72 kids in my class last spring. I taught the capstone course in real estate management. Of that class, 50% were female and 40% were visible minorities. That's the incoming cohort into our industry. So when they look at a lot of our members' websites, they see old white men. It's not a positive signal. How do we change the signal so that everybody feels welcome in our industry? Because there are a lot of super talented people with different skin color, gender, obviously, LGBTQ, indigenous, whatever, disabled, that should be welcome in our industry. We need to reflect the diversity of Canada. So we've made that a major project. We've changed our board size. We now have 30% female representation on our board. We have adopted a panel pledge to try to make sure that panels at these conferences are diverse. I think it was Richard Joy that called them manals. Manals, uh, yeah. Yeah, when it's all, all men on the panel. Yeah, that, that's a term we actually, again, the Australians were a little bit ahead of us who adopted the word manals. And, but they've only gone so far as to as gender diversification and we want to go everything, religious background, skin color, you name it. So we um, have corralled all the other GTA associations into this, ULI, Cornet, NAOP, BOMA, and we put on a great event last spring with a visible minority panel, an all-female panel, and an LGBTQ panel, the first time we've ever seen an LGBTQ and real estate panel in Canada. It was very powerful. It was moving because these people talked about their experiences coming into the industry. Think about the LGBTQ community, for example. 
should I come out? How am I going to be viewed by my peers? You know, am I going to, is it going to affect my career? Those are real issues. And I think the same issues about glass ceilings have affected females in our industry and uh, probably people of color. So this is a bridge we have to cross and we're trying to take a leadership role in it and to move our industry forward. So we're the best we can be. I would agree with the comment about the, the generational differences. I mean, not to single out NAOP, I'm sure it's pretty universal, but at least an experience that I had there, a what, back when I could qualify for the under 35 group there, you go to the events they had for people under 35 and it was a very mixed crowd. But then you look at the mentorship program and we're seeing a poster for all the mentors. This would be all the most senior people in real estate, you know, generally 50 plus because they want people with lots of experience. And because it was obviously included photos, you could see the monochromatic uh, element to the to the people they attracted as the mentors but of course you know go to the under 35 and it's a totally different scene yeah so there is there is a time function to it for sure and, and we have to we have to dismantle those institutions so and NAOP is doing it as well and it's a good example so every year of course we have the community service award on the lifetime achievement award that NAOP gives out of the Rex awards and we've had the past presidents be the ones to make the decision with the more recent exception of Emily Hanna, it's all old white men. And last year on that call, I said, this is wrong. We need to have, because we're self-selecting, and we're just picking other old white men to give these awards to. Let's mix this group up, or let's have some oversight so we have a representation from the younger group and all of those communities. And let's try to broaden this out and send some signals to the industry that everybody's welcome. Especially when, uh, you know, we operate primarily in Toronto, given that we are here, and it is a very diverse uh, city. It's an extremely diverse city. And you're, you're right. It's different other places in Canada, but it is a message we need to roll across as Canada. So to get back to RealPAC as an organization, since your time there in the, the mid-90s, is that when, it, when you started? We yeah, late 90s, yeah. What's your, your biggest, the biggest advocacy win or the advocacy win that you're the most proud of? I'm not sure if this is the right answer, but I'm going to say there's three that I think were, were big wins, and they're all totally different. The first one was on telecommunications, and this was the issue of mandatory access. So one of my first big lobbying issues in the late 90s was when telephone was deregulating, and you had you know Bell in the east and TELUS in the west, and all of a sudden they could each encroach on each other's territories, and so can all these new upstarts. It became The policy was facilities-based competition. From my perspective, the issue was a loss of property rights because apparently these telephone companies could kick their way into your building and install their equipment in your telephone room without any license or any say on the landlord at all. And we sued the CRTC, and that really backed them off in terms of that progressing that. So I think that was a big win for property rights early in, in my career there. I think the second big win was saving the REITs from the so-called Halloween massacre, which was October 31st, 2006. You remember that the federal government eliminated income trusts as a flow-through vehicle in Canada, and the REITs were spared. At least most of the REITs were spared. The seniors' housing REITs weren't, and nor were the hotel REITs, because they believed that was an active business. Meaning it would be taxed pre-distribution? Is that the... Meaning it would be taxed as a corporation. They enacted these SIFT rules, which had the same effect as taxing you as if you were a, actually taxing you as if you were a, a taxable trust as opposed to a flow-through trust. So, so everybody that, listening who has a job at a REIT, <laughs> say thank you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, uh, no, that was a huge win for us. And we had been meeting with federal government and showing them how much the REIT industry was growing around the world. So I think that was a big help. 
And then finally, you know, Bill, I've told our members, Bill 108 is the biggest single win that we have had on the land use provincial policy side since inception because it included everything that we didn't like about development. You know, the high unregulated taxes and fees in Section 37, the fact that parochial municipal councils could, in essence, prevent development, uh, force housing costs higher by not having an appeal right to the OMB, not having a paternal oversight from adults. So all of those elements, the housing elements, were big wins for the industry, and hopefully they endure. And then looking forward, we look backwards. Looking forward, if you could wave a magic wand and just dictate to the city one item. Or the province. Or the, the province, or the, or the, yeah. Or sort of the federal funny, government, yeah. Any, any level. Of course, yeah, you operate at multiple levels. So if you could just dictate one change to further enhance our industry, what would it be? I think it would be development approval timelines. We need to Singaporeize our development approval processes. They are stuck in the 50s. They're paper-based in many municipalities. I've often thought, what would Google do if it ran City of Toronto planning? You know what they would do? They would probably triage all development applications into you know, simple, medium, and hard. The simple stuff would be automated. You submit your plans electronically. They get scanned for building code approval automatically. You get your approval, yes or no, in one half of a second. One half of a second approvals. That's what we need. We need automated approvals. The more difficult stuff, fine. Maybe there's a consultation process, but we've got to automate planning in this country. It's the only thing that's not moving. You can't hear it, but a lot of developers just cheered hearing that. Yeah. And then cringe because they're still in the middle of a three-year consultation process. For three a, years. Yeah. Three years is quick for some <laughs> yeah. people. Like It's crazy. We've got to get back to the future. So we covered a lot, of, a lot of topics today, and we've actually done episodes on related to some of these topics. So I'm going to put show links or episode links into the show notes. Jane Papino was a guest, so we'll put hers in. We did an episode on tall timber. We mentioned that at the start of the show, so we'll, we'll put a link in there. Jonathan Westine came on. We'll put his in. It was a green building. And we also covered Bill 108 with the Tony Irwin episode. So I'll put a link for that. And if you want to jump more into all these topics, you know, of course, from Michael's position, he covers you know, a very overarching position. So these are kind of deeper dives into some, some of the stuff we talked about. But Michael, I want to thank you a lot for coming on the show today. It was yeah, great. thanks very much. Very informative. It was fun, guys. Yeah. Thanks for having thanks. me. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.